0: over in your bibles to matthew 21 matthew chapter 21 this morning we want to take care of a couple more verses here in this chapter verses 18 to um, 22 and i titled the message this morning the curse of fruitless religion, the curse of fruitless religion. Follow along in the word of God as I read the text for you out of Matthew chapter 21. Beginning in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Well, we want to look at this morning the curse of fruitless religion, the curse of fruitless religion. Now, just way of introduction here and a little bit of review. Um, last week we looked at Jesus as he came back to the temple and he cleansed the temple, and it's very important to understand the. Uh, timeline here. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in the area there on Saturday. Uh, We know that because John 12 says it was six days before the Passover. And so he arrives in that area on Saturday and he chooses to stay with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in a little town called Bethany outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And that was kind of a common thing because Jerusalem was so packed with people during this Passover time, you probably couldn't find a place in the city walls at all. So they actually would expand the city, the edict that said that the walls of the the city would be expanded so you could actually stay outside the city for Passover, because that was one of the requirements. You had to be within the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So they actually would pass a special little rule that allowed the boundaries of Jerusalem to be expanded to envelop all the people that came, and they came from everywhere. And so Jesus comes to Bethany, and remember, he's just healed a couple blind people. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and now he's at Lazarus's home, Mary, Martha, there in Bethany. And I'm sure that there's you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of people following him at this point in his ministry. Um, He's really trying to minister to his disciples, but whenever he does something supernatural, it just draws people like flies, and that's exactly what's happening. They're following him, and as he gets to Bethany on Saturday, some of the people within Jerusalem hear that the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is out in Bethany, and they come out to meet him on that Sunday, and so they have a a, meeting meeting, There, you might say, and all these people are gathered around. It's not until Monday, actually, though, and we've studied this, where we call it Palm Sunday, but it actually happened on a Monday where he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And remember, when they were in Bethany, he told the disciples to go to a little town, Beth outside of Bethany, a little village, and there you're going to find a colt and a donkey and a colt, and you can bring that for me, and we will ride into Jerusalem, and so he rode as a king on this donkey, and the crowds were laying down their garments before him and waving palm branches, as was the custom, and they were shouting "Hosanna to the son of David and uh, which means save now that 's what that word means hosanna and so that was Monday, and they ended this grand uh, event, this parade, you might say. It was kind of like his coronation as their king. They were lifting him up. They were exalting him as their Messiah at this point. But they didn't understand that he wasn't there to deal with the physical burden they were carrying from the the Roman rulers. He wasn't going to free him from the yoke of Rome. That's what they wanted. And they thought, man, if a guy has supernatural power like this, he can definitely take care of the Romans, no problem. And so they were looking for him to do that. Well, instead of going to Fort, the, the Roman fort to take over and kick all the Romans out, and he went right to the temple. And it kind of showed us an important point that God is more concerned with how men relates to him than he is how men relate to one another. He wasn't really concerned about this burden they were carrying with the Roman government at this point. That wasn't why he was there. He was there purely on a spiritual mission. They were looking for a a leader to free them. That was Monday. And his parade, his coronation event, ends at the temple. So you can imagine all these people following him and praising him and all this. He gets off, looks around at the temple, goes back to Bethany for Monday night, stays at his, his friend's house once again, And then Tuesday, he returns. And as he's coming back into Jerusalem, this event happens. This event with the fig tree. Now in Matthew, we see here it's just related to us as almost kind of one day. But Mark tells us that it was actually two days on the the day in on Tuesday when he's coming back to clean the temple out. That's when this actually happened. He sees the fig tree. And he goes up to it, and we're going to study what happens to it. And then the next day, Mark says, when they were, they were walking by the fig tree again, the disciples were amazed that it was dead already. It wasn't dying, it was already dead. So Tuesday he goes, he curses this fig tree on the way into the temple. He goes into the temple, we saw this last week, literally cleans it out. Cleans it out. And this was one of the first divine Credentials that we saw of Christ. Remember, Matthew is presenting him as the king of kings. And so at every point, Matthew and, and the Lord is pointing out his kingship and his authority. And so we see two acts here that clearly point to us his sovereign kingly authority. And the first one we saw last week, which was the cleansing of the temple. And that proved to be really you might think, a judgment against their own religion. He was looking at what went on in that temple, and he said, this is ridiculous. People are ripping people off. They're they're exchanging monies. They're doing all this stuff. This is my father's house. It's called to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And so he literally, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, threw all these vendors out. Now, if you've ever been to a swap meet, can you imagine going to a swap meet? Usually people that are selling things at swap meet are eager to sell. They're eager to get money from you. You know, they're, they're not easy to, you know, uh, just kind of placate and say, oh, you know, just go home. You know, you're not going to make any money. No, they're kind of hard people. They, w- they want their money. And that's why they're there. That's why they're spending their Saturday at the swap meet. Can you imagine going to the swap meet and say, sorry, you're all going to have to leave? <laughs> they say, who are you? And especially when you're doing it in a religious environment. I remember I went over to, we were walking over from Sequoia Station one day and we went by one of the, the Catholic churches and they were having their big carnival and their big bazaar. It was kind of nice. I mean, they were fellowshipping or whatever, but we went in and we're walking around and, you know, they're selling all the stuff. And, and this just came to my mind. It just came to my mind that they weren't doing it in the church, per se, the building. But, you know, it, was just, it just reminded me of this. And they called this basically the Bazaar of Annas, who was a high priest back in Jesus' time. And it was all about the money. So if you came to Jerusalem on the Passover and brought your little lamb that you've been raising for the sacrifice, it would have to be inspected. And when they inspected it, they would say, oh, sorry, it doesn't pass inspection. But you know what? We have lambs for sale over here. And they would take your perfectly good lamb... <laughs> And probably resell them. That's probably what they were doing at 10 times the price. So you can see that he was rightfully indignant about what was going on. And he basically went in there and cleaned house. And then that night, Tuesday night, he went back to Bethany. Most likely he spent the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus once again. And then on Wednesday, he comes again to the city of Jerusalem, and that's what we're going to study next time in verse 23, when he has the confrontation with the religious leaders. But it's very important to understand the context here and, and where we're really going with all this, because if you don't get it right, you're going to be a little mixed up. If you read Mark chapter uh, you know, 11, it almost seems like, well, there's, there's two different accounts here of the fig tree. There's not. It's all one. Matthew just kind of focuses on one point of view. Mark focuses on a different. So it's kind of a uh, important uh, thing for us to understand in that, in that way. Now, remember, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's coming as their king. He's coming as their king. Very important to understand that. And as he comes in... He cleanses the temple, which is first a judgment on their religion. And then the second divine thing that he does to exert his authority is that he curses this fig tree. And what this is, is really a judgment against Israel as a nation, not just a religion, but their their whole nation. And he basically points that out to them. Now you can go all the way back in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, and you see where the promise of the coming King is promised, It's prophesied over and over again. And so we we have Jesus riding in there, on his coronation as their King, and then he goes and he goes and he cleanses their temple. All right, that's not something that a King would do in their mind. They thought, no, you're here to overthrow the Roman government. What are you doing, messing with our religion? And so they had a problem with that. They were looking for a military leader. They were looking for an economic leader. They weren't looking for a spiritual leader. That's not what they were looking for. And they thought, boy, this guy, with all his supernatural abilities, he's going to be able to free us from this yoke of bondage, and he's going to set the economy in order, and everything's just going to be (laughs) hokey-dokey. But instead of attacking Rome, he attacked their own religion Judaism instead of becoming a conqueror he became a confronter instead of talking about revolution he talked about righteousness and instead of cleaning out the enemy from the camp he cleaned out his own house his father's house and that was not consistent with what they expected they were looking for a king who could be an economic and political and social deliverer, savior. Not a spiritual savior. And not a lot has changed. Today they're looking for the same thing. And that's why, unfortunately, Israel is in the prime position in history to really wrap their arms around the Antichrist full bore when he arrives. Because Daniel chapter 9 tells us that's exactly what's going to happen. They're looking for somebody that can come in and set everything right. What's the number one thing in the Middle East that people talk about? What? Peace, right? Peace in the Middle East. I saw Netanyahu last week on, on uh, Greta van Susteren. She interviewed him. Great interview. And he said, you know, we're, we're all about Peace. We want to have peace talks. We want to have peace talks with the Palestinians. They won't come to the table. We want to have peace, peace, peace. That's all we talked about. See, I mean, I understand where he's coming from, but he's not coming from a spiritual... He's coming from a purely political, militaristic mentality. And I understand why. Think about it. Israel is this little tiny country, and everybody's against it. Everybody. And so they have to defend themselves. And so you see here that first of all he cleanses the temple, it's a judgment against the religion. He, he curses this tree, which is really a picture of him judging them as a nation. See, that's why they responded in the way they did. You say, why did everybody want to kill Jesus? I mean, one day they're they're exalting him and lifting him up and praising the son of David, Hosanna. And it seems like the next couple days, whoa, they're saying, we don't want this guy. Who is this guy? We don't want him. See, he wasn't like a king like they were looking for. He wasn't the ordinary king. That's not the kind of king that they were looking for. That's what Pilate said when he asked, when he, when Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? He said, sure, I'm a king, but my kingdom is what? Not of this world. I'm a different kind of king, Pilate. Don't worry about it. And we see here, really, with Israel, they have this profession without practice. Profession without practice. You know, today we could call it hypocrisy. Profession without practice. We see it in Christianity all the time. People profess to be Christian. But then you look at their life, and it's far, far cry from what the Lord demands of them. I mean, thinking of hypocrisy, reminds me of a story. There was a man who was unemployed and didn't know what to do and looking around and he found a job at the local zoo for an animal feeder. So he went, he applied, and they said, you know, we're sorry that position's been filled. But we do have another position available if you're willing to work. And the gentleman said, well, sure, you know, I'm down to my luck. I've been unemployed for a couple weeks, and, you know, family's hungry, and I'll do whatever. What is it? Well, our gorilla died yesterday. And the gorilla, you know, uh, event here is uh, the presentation of the gorilla is one of the main reasons people come here. So what we want you to do is we have this giant gorilla suit, because when the gorilla gets sick, we'll just dress somebody up in the suit, and they sit in the cage, and everybody thinks it's a gorilla. Our gorilla's dead, so we need somebody on a full-time basis pretty much to dress up in this suit, and when the people come in, you know, you just act like a gorilla. I thought, that's kind of odd, but okay, I'll take it. Paid well. He thought, hey, I can't go wrong there. And he kind of got into his job after a couple days, you know, and there's some trapeze there and stuff, and trees, and he's climbing around and grunting and groaning. Everybody's thinking, oh, that's the gorilla. That's great. Well, he got a little crazy on one of the trapezes and he actually lost his balance and he fell over the fence into the lion pen. And he tried to hurry up and scoot back he couldn't get out. And everybody's watching this. And all of a sudden he sees a lion over in the corner. just laying there but all of a sudden he gets up and this man, green, he looks and he's like, Oh man. And the lion lets out this big roar. And the guy just is paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. And the lion walks over to him closer and he lets out another roar. And the guy just lost it. So he starts yelling, help, help. (laughs) All of a sudden, the lion, in a quieter roar, hey, shut up. They're going to find out who we really are. (laughs) See, things aren't always, right, what they seem to be. Things aren't always what they seem to be. That's what hypocrisy is, beloved. That's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy literally means to act or to assume the role of a counterfeit uh, character. To be something you're not. And this is exactly what Jesus is pinpointing in on here in this situation. In Jesus' day, he was confronted with a number of hypocritical attitudes of the religious people. Over and over and over again. And he always spoke out against them. He spoke out about the games they were playing. He spoke out about their facades and their false religiosity. And he encouraged them to embrace true holiness. Holiness. You know, that that speaks to our hearts today. Sometimes we struggle with the temptation to play a certain religious game when it comes to Christ, when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And I'm just here to tell you, when you get into that mindset, when you're trying to be something you're not, so that you can just look religious, that's what hypocrisy is, and it's a major roadblock, roadblock on your journey into holiness. I don't think a lot of people necessarily intentionally set out to become hypocrites. I don't think I've ever met somebody who said, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. I try all the time to be a hypocrite. I just love being a hypocrite. No. But it happens when we allow ourselves to engage in certain religious games, you might call them, instead of pursuing true spiritual biblical holiness. It's what? Profession without practice. Well, let's look at this setting, the divine setting here we see in verse 18. Because it's important to understand the context of this whole event. It says in verse 18, In the morning he was returning to the city, and he became hungry. He became hungry. All right? This kind of points out to us that Christ, Jesus Christ, was a human being. He was God, but he was also a human being. He got hungry, he sweat, he, you know, I mean, all those things. And here, he was hungry. Can you imagine that the son of God, the God that created everything, actually, you know, his stomach growling. (laughs) We don't think of things like that. And I don't know why he was hungry. Maybe he had to get up and go and pray and he missed breakfast at his friend's house. I don't know. But he's on his way back into Jerusalem and he gets hungry. And this is this event that, that happens on his way into Cleanse, the temple. And it says there in verse 19, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. So this wasn't, by the wayside means it was alongside of the road. Fig trees are are very prevalent over there. They're actually um, looked upon as a a sign of divine blessing by God. Fruitfulness, you might say. Whereas the absence of fig trees, like in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, it talks about the absence of figs being a sign of judgment. So we see here that he's walking down the road, he's hungry, he sees this fig tree, and he goes up to it. And it wasn't in somebody's, you know, it's just a wild fig tree alongside the road. He went to it. He found nothing on it but leaves. Now, this is where the act of the cursing the fig tree, we actually see it begin to play out in front of us. You have to understand that fig trees bloom twice a year. They bloom twice a year. And usually... It's not this time of year. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us that it wasn't the time for figs. (laughs) It wasn't the time. It wasn't fig season, Mark 11 says. But he was attracted to it because it had leaves. Now, you have to know something about fig trees to understand this. On a fig tree, if you've ever had a fig tree or seen a fig tree, they're nice trees. They can grow rather large. They're good for shade, things like that. But if you ever had a fig tree, the fruit always appears before the leaves. It's kind of an odd thing. You see little nubs on the branches and then, you know, the figs are there and then then the leaves come. So Jesus was attracted to this fig tree thinking, "Hey, it's got leaves, it's got to have fruit." Bottom line, the fruit comes before the leaves. But it wasn't fig season. And so you see this tree with leaves and you think, okay, I know there should be fruit on there. I'm hungry. I'm going to go over and get me something to eat. When he got there, it says he found nothing on it but leaves only. And it was too early in the season for the figs to have died or anything, so that wouldn't have happened. What was wrong with this tree? Somehow it was diseased. Somehow it was a fruitless tree. We don't know. It doesn't really tell us. But Jesus in his ability to use everything as an illustration for his disciples. Takes this diseased, fruitless tree that's just got some leaves on it, and he turns it into a profound illustration for his disciples. I mean, he used a lot of things. You stop and think about it. He used the birds of the air, the water, weather, wineskins, trees, flowers of the field. He used all those things to teach spiritual truth. So this is just another occasion for Jesus. He was the master at this. Well, why did he, what's the reason he cursed this fig tree? Well, it was because it was barren. It was fruitless. In other words, he pronounced, when it says there in verse uh, 19, he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. That's basically the equivalent of, of cursing that tree. He's cursing that tree. Why did he do that? He pronounced its destruction. He pronounced its doom, its death. He killed the tree with one word or a sentence there. And it happened just like that. It wasn't like he spoke those words and then, you know, gradually over the next couple weeks, you know, like roundup, you know, you go out and you kill your weeds and it takes a couple days and then eventually they start to wither and then eventually they're dead. Not like that. Not with the Lord. It was like immediately dead. Dead matter of fact, it tells us in another text that it, it died from the roots up. So it just immediately, it was dead from the curse. Now, here's where the interesting part comes. It says in Mark that on the first day he cursed it. On the second day, when they came back on Wednesday, the disciples saw that it was already dead. Matthew is just giving us this one account of it. He's kind of combining, you might say, Tuesday and Wednesday and putting them together. Whereas over in Mark, you're going to read, well, they went in, he cursed it, and then when they went in another day, then they saw it was dead. You can only conclude from that that when he cursed it, the disciples must not have been paying attention because I think it died immediately. I think it was dead on the spot. They didn't notice it till the next day, Mark tells us. Either way, what's the, the understanding here? Why is he trying to curse this tree. What, what reason? Is he just ticked off? I don't think so. He's using this to convey a spiritual truth. Well, what was the result? The result of this really affected two things. It affected, first of all, the tree died, obviously, right away. But look at what he says. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. So he not only... Just simply killed the tree. He just didn't kill it for this season. He said, you know what? This this is kind of a, a thing for the future, too. The immediate future. You're not going to see any fruit tree, not today, nor in the future. Now, think about where he's going when he does this. Where's he going? He's on his way to cleanse the temple. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he knows exactly what he's going to find in that temple because he was there the night before and he knew exactly what he was going to do. And he was almost using this as an illustration to prepare the hearts of his disciples and those around him to say, look, here's what happens when you follow just vain religion. What's vain religion? Vain religion is fruitless religion. Fruitless religion. Romans, Paul says in 10.2, says... That kind of religion has the the form of godliness, right? But it doesn't have any power. That's what Jesus was saying. It says they have a zeal for God without knowledge. And so Jesus, after he curses this fig tree, he continues to march in and he cleanses the temple, which basically denounced their religion. And then he denounces them, as a nation here, because of their fruitlessness. Well, what's he trying to show them? Why is that important for him to make this point? I think Jesus is trying to show us a divine principle here in this text. And the principle is this. Fruit is always the manifestation of true salvation. Fruit is always, 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 always the manifestation of true salvation. You go back to Matthew 7. The Lord said on the Sermon on the Mount, what? By their fruit you will know them. In Matthew thirteen, the parable of the four soils. It wasn't about the soil, but it, it showed the good soil. What what was seen coming out of the good soil? It produced what? Fruit. It produced a crop. Hundredfold, sixty, thirty. And then you go over to John chapter fifteen, verse five, and it says, Every branch that abides in me, Christ says, will what? Bring forth much fruit. The principle is simply That fruit is always an indicator, a manifestation of true salvation. And what God is saying here to Israel is, you know what? You have this religiosity, but you're not saved. You're unredeemed. You're lost. You're cut off from God. Now think about it. This is God's chosen people he's talking about. These are the people that just hailed him as their king. And he's pronouncing This profound judgment. And I think it was key to understand that he did it not out in the wilderness somewhere, but he did it right here on his way into Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Because Jerusalem is the hub. See, Jerusalem is the heart of the beast. (laughs) Jerusalem is where all the activity happens. And he wanted to show them very clearly that if you don't have true salvation, you're going to be fruitless. You're going to be fruitless. He wanted them to understand that you needed to seek God with your whole heart and find true holiness. Don't just go about your religious duties thinking that somehow that's going to earn your way to heaven. I mean, I remember when we were over in Israel. I mean, you're just inundated with religion. It's all around you. I mean, you can't escape it. I mean, even you—you you, you go to the, the the Holy Sepulchre there, the one with the in the where where Jesus, you know, the the the, uh, the advertised one, I guess I should say. Not, that, I don't think it really happened there, but that's what they promote. The church, and you go there, and you have like four different religions in that one building. And they all scheduled to take their part and you know you got the Greek Orthodox, you got the Catholic you got, you got just all this religiosity. And then you have all the the, the the Jewish faith going on there. It's all over the place. And you see them down there by the wall you know the, the Orthodox Jews they have all the the things tied on them and their little garments and The law on their forehead. And they're bobbing and nodding and praying and putting prayers in the wall. And they're doing all sorts of things. As if they're not even thinking about it. And you can't help but walk away from that place going, man, look at all that they do, all they sacrifice. And it's all for naught. They don't know the Savior. They've missed it. It's gone right over their head. See, and they, were, they are doing today exactly what they were doing in the time of Christ. Vain repetition. Meaningless prayers. They were playing out the religion before men so everybody could look at them. But you know what? It was nothing. It was all just leaves on a, on a limb. There was no fruit. Because they denied the truth of God. They denied the revelation of God. They denied their own Messiah. They were going through the religious motions. I mean, I know what that's like. I grew up in a church, the Catholic church is full of religious motions. And when I came to Christ, when I was 19 years old, I looked back and I thought, man, what good did that do me? What good did that do me all those Fridays I couldn't eat meat and I had to eat fish? What good did that do me all the times I sacrificed candy for Lent? What good did that do me to go to all those masses over and over and over again? Catechism and altar boy classes and all sorts of things. What good did that do me? I was still on my way to hell. didn't do me nothing. Not one thing. Why? Because it's vain religion. It's empty religion. It's fruitless religion. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to them, to his disciples. Don't be part of this. So he pronounces judgment on them. If you turn over to Luke chapter 13, it's kind of interesting. It has a little parable there. Luke 13, verse 6. It says, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years... That's interesting that the Lord would say that, three years. That's about the time of his ministry, right? I wonder if he's drawing a relationship here. I don't know. But he says... For three years, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. What's he say? Cut it down. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on fertilizer, manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You know what that speaks to me of? That speaks of the patience of God. The patience of God, his grace. Give it a little more time. I mean, maybe you've been praying for that lost relative and you're just about ready to give up hope. (laughs) Don't give up hope. Hey, if they're still breathing, there's a chance. There's an opportunity for God to work in their heart, to quicken their heart, to understand the truth of the gospel. Give it more time. And so the Lord did. Actually, you think about it. I mean, here... In Matthew, back to Matthew 21, he does pronounce this judgment on their religion and on their nation. But you know what? It wasn't until 70 A.D. when the Romans came and sacked the city of Jerusalem and totally leveled the temple. (laughs) So the judgment came. Jesus wasn't proclaiming a judgment that wasn't going to happen. He just gave them a little more time to deal with it. But the judgment came in 70 A.D. They lost their temple. See, he cursed the tree. It never did bring forth any fruit. And you know what? Even to this day, it doesn't bring forth any fruit. I mean, do you understand why these people hated Jesus? He was trampling on everything they thought was sacred. And what he's saying to them is, you know what? Jerusalem and Judaism, it's spiritually fruitless. It's sinful. It's cursed for judgment. That's the message of their king. (laughs) He's coronated on one day and his message the next day is basically, you know what, you better clean your act up or you're doomed. They didn't expect their Messiah to say such a thing. They forgot clearly what John the Baptist said back in chapter 3, that when the Messiah comes his fan in his hand, he will purge the floor, he will gather his wheat into the granary and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, the Messiah would come, and he would come in judgment. Acceptable year of the Lord was over. He's pronouncing judgment at this point. And it says there that immediately the tree withered away. He cursed it and it died. Well, Mark tells us the next day, when the disciples were walking by it, they were truly amazed at what happened. Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. How did the fig tree wither at once? They were blown away. Once again, it's just a testimony of Christ's supernatural ability. His words have meanings. Mark 11.21 Peter says that they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Dried up from the roots. If you look in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18 and other texts, you're going to find a divine principle within the Word of God. And basically, over and over again in in Deuteronomy 28, we're not going to go there for time's sake, but basically the principle is this, you obey me, I'm going to bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you. It's very clear. God doesn't pull any punches. And at this point, Israel was not obeying him. And even today, they're not obeying him. Therefore, this curse is still in effect from God. You say, well, I thought they were God's chosen people. They are. But they continue to demonstrate A religion that is leaves without any fruit. God has no choice. It's religion without reality. And so therefore they're cursed. Now you have to understand, they are preserved by God divinely. But they are not blessed. They are not blessed. They're preserved because God will redeem them in the future when the Messiah comes. And you stop and you think and you hear a lot of people today, well-known people, oh, God is blessing Israel today. No, he's not. He's preserving them. He's preserving them. Can you imagine what it would look like if Israel was blessing them? (laughs) Or if God was blessing Israel? What we're seeing now in Israel is not a regathering of the nation prophesied in the Bible That's going to be done when the Messiah does his redeeming work. What we're seeing now is just preliminary activity. They're regathering themselves politically. They're regathering themselves economically. But they're not regathering themselves redemptively or messianically. As a matter of fact, there are even some Orthodox Jews who understand the scriptures in Israel very Orthodox Jews, very conservative, and they do not recognize the state of Israel. Pretty amazing. And the reason they don't recognize the state of Israel is because they don't believe it's the real thing. They think this isn't, they read the scriptures and say, this is it's not just a political thing. There's a spirituality involved here. And these Orthodox Jews in Israel don't, recognize the Israeli currency or anything. They use the American dollar. Because they think this whole political thing, the peace and all that, that's just a false attempt. And they kind of see through it, and I think they're right. See, right now, the way it sits, beloved, Israel is set up for the Antichrist to waltz right in and say, hey, you want peace? I'll give you peace. Oh, you want temple Go, Go for it. That's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen, and they're they're just primed for that. But you go over there in Israel, and you see, you know, you see young young women who are in the uh, IDF and they're the Israeli Defense Force, and they're they got their M sixteen on their shoulder, and they're going to school, and they're sitting at the bus station. You see them all over the place. Men and women, In the, I mean, they don't have peace there. God's not blessing them in that way. He's preserving them. I mean, Israel has more enemies than I don't know who. That's why they're trying to survive. I mean, literally, their, their life is full of, of just defending themselves. And it's because there's leaves, but there's no fruit. Now, that's what he says about Israel. There, there's going to come a day when they're going to cry out, God says this in his word. They're going to cry out. And they are going to uh, enter into that blessing of salvation. Someday they're going to look, the Bible says, on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son. See, someday they're going to know what it means to be redeemed in the fullest sense. But right now they're just trying to keep their nation together. I mean, their jets can't even fly for three miles in one direction without crossing a border. Difficult. And so you see the, the Jewish state and they're always trying to compromise, compromise, oh, we'll give away this land, we'll do None of that's going to work. It's just not. And there's going to come a time and a day when it looks like, you know what, it's over for Israel. And when that happens, that's when the Lord is going to step in and take care of business truly. And they will truly recognize the hand of God. So the disciples are observing all this. They're truly amazed that this thing just withered. It speaks of God's supernatural ability to do that. And... They want to know how did this happen? And he asks them in verse, or he answers them in verse 21, the answer of Jesus. He says, and Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, which means, pay attention, guys, I want you to get this. This is important. What I'm about to say to you is very important. It shows an emphasis. He says, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Wow. You see, that, you look at that, and it's like kind of a little bit, you might say it's detached. <laughs> it's like, what does this have to do with the fig tree thing? I mean, he's talking about the fig tree, and then all of a sudden they ask him, well, how did this happen? And he goes into this thing on prayer. Well, it isn't really connected with the lesson of the, the parable of the fig tree, but it is connected to their response to the lesson. See, that's what he's focusing on. He's focusing on their response. They're saying, how, how did you do this? And he's saying, hey, it's power. It's called power. It's called supernatural power. And you have access to it as well. If you understand the presence of faith, first of all, that That's essential. You know it cracks me up when I hear people who don't even follow Christ or don't even trust God or in any way are religious, they kind of look at, "Oh yeah, look at what, what, what God done for me. He hasn't done anything for me. Well, you're not one of his children. You have no faith. <laughs> Maybe if you practice some faith, then you'll understand more fully the blessings of God. See, the presence of faith is essential. We're told in 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15 to have faith in God. Have faith in God. You don't have faith in a tree or fish. You have faith in God. You have to have the presence of faith. But then he talks about the problem of their doubt. Because he says, if you have faith and do not doubt. Do not doubt. So basically he's saying, you know what, guys? If you have faith and you don't doubt, you're going to be able to do things just like this. Matter of fact, you could even do more. You could say to this mountain, and maybe he's even referring to the Mount of Olives there, we don't know, be cast into the sea. It would have been the Dead Sea, 4,000 feet below them at that point. Dump that mountain in the sea, and it's going to be done for you. Well, people say, well, I've never had a mountain move for me. Well, listen, sometimes you have to understand what you're reading. Sometimes, I mean, we take the Bible literally, okay, and you have to understand it literally. All right? Do you really think that Jesus is pointing to the Mount of Olives and saying, oh, if you guys have faith, you can take this Mount of Olives and just have it cast into the sea? No. He's not saying that. Matter of fact, in the Babylonian Talmud, they called the great rabbis of their day rooters up of mountains because of their faith. It's a metaphor for a great spiritual leader. In other words, people could remove great obstacles, people who could solve great problems, people who could express great power. That's what he's relating to, that kind of power. Rooting up mountains is an is a illustration of dealing with difficulty. Dealing with something that's just impossible. And the Lord is telling them, you know what? You may be faced with something. And he's probably more directly saying to his disciples, you are going to be faced with something. More than you could ever even imagine. But you know what? If you have faith in God's power, you'll get through it. You'll get through it. And that rings true today as well. Matter of fact, in John, he records, greater works shall these do when I go to my Father. And so you have to have the faith. You, you, you want to deal with that problem of doubt that's always lingering in our lives. And then he points out here the principle of Prayer. In other words, he's trying to get them to see that this power is available to you through prayer. John 14 says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And in verse 22, he sums it all up and he says, hey, all things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. See, he turns this into a lesson on prayer for them. So that they can understand this same power that Christ is using, they can tap into. And that's available for us as well. Now, it's important to understand their faith wasn't in nothing. You know, you can't just go around having faith. Oh, I got faith. Well, what's your faith in? See, faith is this. If you want a definition of faith, faith is placing your confidence in God. Faith is placing your confidence in God. You hear people all the time, well, I believe. Well, what do you believe in? Faith is placing your confidence in something you know that is true. It is believing in God as God has revealed Himself through His Word. So if you have faith and you don't doubt what is said, you believe that God is able to do it. And when you pray for something within the confines of His will, He's going to perform it. If I know something that's consistent with the mind of God, with the revelation of God, if I know that something is consistent with His will and with His purpose and His desire for me, then you know what, when I pray for that, I'm probably going to see that come to pass. The problem is, in our prayer lives, we're praying for things... That maybe you're not in God's will. Maybe you're not in his purpose for us. Maybe you're not consistent with his word. I hear people pray all the time, Oh God, give me more love. Lord, give me more love. I call that a ridiculous prayer. You know why? Because God is not going to give you more love. If you know Jesus Christ, the Bible says the love of Christ has been what? Shed abroad in your heart. Do you think for a second that you can get any more love than that? (laughs) In some religions, you hear people pray, oh God, please forgive my sin, please. You know, people crawl on miles with crosses on their back. Ridiculous. Why? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that your sins are washed away. There's nothing more to be done. There's nothing more to be said on the matter. Matter of fact, Christ said it all when he died on the cross. His last words were what? It is finished. Last time I checked, the word finished means it's over, it's done, it's completed. You don't have to go back and add to it. So prayer is a vital part of our understanding. And it goes right back to that principle of fruit is always a manifestation of true salvation. I mean, why would you pray for something if you knew it wasn't God's will? You think you're, you know more than God? And See, he's pointing out to his disciples, I think, this at this point in time, because they're coming at a point where they're thinking... Wow, I guess Jesus isn't this political leader that's going to militaristically throw over the Roman government. What's going to happen next? And he's getting them ready for what's going to happen next. Because I don't even think at this point they still got the idea that he was going to die in a couple days. They had no idea. They're thinking, wow, this big parade, this is going pretty good. Look at all these people. This is going to work out pretty good. He's getting them ready for the time that he's hung on the cross and he breathes his last breath and everybody runs. The followers of Jesus ran, hid, denied him. Until they began to realize, wow. I mean, even after the resurrection, they had some problems with unbelief, (laughs) didn't they? We're no different than they are. We're going to be hit with some hard things in the near future. It could be financial, it could be health, it could be relationships, it could be our children. We don't know what is coming around the bend. But I'm here to tell you that if you believe in your heart that God says what he says and it's true, that you can have faith in it and you can understand that, you know what, God is going to get me through these hard times. Here we go to prayer on behalf of each other and for the purposes of our Lord and for His glorious kingdom, not just a I want list. Do we really believe that this area needs a touch from the hand of God? Do we really believe that the people here in the Bay Area do not embrace the truth? Do we really believe that they need to hear the gospel? Do we really believe that the gospel has the power to change heart? and minds to God. Do we believe that? If we believe that, then why wouldn't we take this very word of God out into the workplaces, out into the neighborhoods, and begin to share it with people in a heartfelt way, in a way that rattles their cage a little bit, rather than being so passive. Maybe we're so passive because maybe we really don't believe that this kind of power below it is available to us. We just need to trust him to work. Trust him to use us. We're all different. We're all gifted differently. We're all of different personalities. That's by the hand of God. He wants to use each one of us divinely for his express purpose. Right here at Grace Bible Church. Right here in the Bay Area. You know people I will never know. And I know people, you will probably never know. That's divine plan. God has created it that way. But we all have, I trust, the same truth, the same message of salvation in Christ alone. And if that's true, then we really need to ask God to use us in a mighty way. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this lesson of this cursed fig tree. And Lord, I pray that we would not be exercising empty, fruitless religion in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would renew our hearts to your truth. I ask that you would give us a sincere burden for the lost. I pray that you would renew our hope in the fact that your word changes lives, that your word can cause hearts to repent of their sin and turn back to you. We can't do that. Only you can do that. And we believe you have the power to do it. And so we ask you, Lord, first of all, start here. Start right here at home. Pray for each individual here in this building today. That their hearts would be edified, that their hearts would be exhorted, their hearts would be built up through the power of your word and your spirit. Pray that they would have a renewed effort to reach the lost for you. Father, I pray for those who may not know you yet. They haven't experienced the fruit of salvation. They're a tree with leaves but no fruit. God, that can change. Because you're the God who changes the hearts and minds of people. And so, Lord, we call upon you to do that. We call upon you to do your divine work in those hearts, those unbelieving hearts. That only you could do. Father, that you would draw them, that you would woo them, that you would cause them to look at their empty lives and realize there's got to be something more. I pray that they would humble their hearts before you, a holy God, and cry out for salvation. Save now, Hosanna. The prayer you will answer when it comes from a sincere heart. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.